I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 152 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I have a great episode for you. As always, I picked a famous day from history, and I'm going to tell you three stories that shared headlines with that famous day, along with a fun advertisement at the end. Today's famous date is June 25th, 1950, and I'm taking a headline from the Waco Tribune Herald out of Waco, Texas. It says, Tank-led communists invade South Korea. Friends, June 25th, 1950 was the day the Korean War began. This famous date has been on my list since the beginning of this podcast, and I'm just barely getting around to covering it, which is kind of sad because the Korean War is known as the Forgotten War. If it weren't for the TV series MASH that takes place during the Korean War, even less attention would be given to the conflict. As it stands, the final episode of MASH back in 1983 still holds the record as the most-watched, scripted TV show of all time. On the day of the invasion, 75,000 soldiers from North Korea flooded into South Korea. For decades, the Korean peninsula had belonged to Japan. But after World War II ended, it was divided up, with the Soviets occupying the North half and the United States occupying the Southern half. The North was backed by the Soviets, and the South was pro-Western, and had the support of countries like the United States. The invasion was considered the first act of the Cold War. And just two days later, President Harry S. Truman sent troops by air and by sea to South Korea, officially marking the United States' entrance into the conflict. The U.S. was afraid that if communism was allowed to spread into South Korea, it was only a matter of time until it spread further and further, and they might have to go to war with Russia and China. People worried that it could be the beginning of World War III. President Truman said, If we let Korea down, the Soviets will keep right on going and swallow up one place after another. Considering that World War II had only been over for a few years, nobody was ready to take something like that on again. And maybe that's why it's known as the Forgotten War. Even while the war was going on, it didn't get a lot of media attention. The war started out with the U.S. in a defensive position. They just wanted to keep the North out of the South. But that didn't work so well for them. The Northern troops were well-trained and disciplined, whereas the Southern troops often seemed confused and would run away from fights. For the Americans, it was a very hot environment that they just weren't used to. And there wasn't very much clean water. A lot of soldiers got sick. Since things weren't working out, the Allied troops decided it would be better to go on the offensive. But China didn't like that, and they sent troops to aid the North Koreans. Basically, it was the thing they'd been trying to avoid. The Chinese involvement turned into a fight between President Truman and General MacArthur, with the latter eventually getting fired from his high-ranking position over it. Negotiations were started, but the process took years And it wasn't until July 27, 1953, three years after the war started, that the two sides signed an armistice and the war came to an end. 
This is when the two-mile-wide demilitarized zone between the two countries was created, a place that still exists today. Even though the war only lasted for three years, five million people died during the conflict. 500,000 of those casualties were civilians. 40,000 U.S. troops were killed, with another 100,000 injured. But I think that's enough talk about war. Instead of spouting off statistics, I think it would be a lot more fun to march into our additional history stories. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm going to tell you what headline was on the front page of basically every newspaper in the country. In fact, I think I saw more about this story than I did about the beginning of the Korean War. This specific headline comes from the Mexia Daily News out of Mexia, Texas. It says, 58 persons dead in worst U.S. air crash. On June 23, 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York City. The plane had a very long journey ahead of it as it was flying all the way to Seattle, Washington. It was a daily route, and it had a stopover in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sadly, as you can probably guess from the headline, things didn't go quite as planned, and the flight turned into the deadliest air accident up to that point in U.S. history. The airplane was a DC-4, which was a four-engine passenger plane. The design had been in use for about five years, and it was a really popular model. This particular flight had 58 people on board, and that number included the crew and passengers. The pilot that night was 35-year-old Captain Robert C. Lind, and the first officer was 35-year-old Vern F. Wolfe. There was one flight attendant, 27 women, 22 men, and six children on board behind the pilots. As the plane reached closer and closer to the Lake Michigan area, the pilots knew that there was a storm, and they'd have to be cautious as they flew around or through it. They were cruising along at about 4,000 feet when air traffic control asked them to drop down to 3,500 feet. Apparently, there was another plane in the area flying above them, but the other plane was experiencing so much turbulence, they wanted to drop down to a lower altitude too. The pilots of Flight 2501 agreed and moved to the requested altitude. Then, a short time later, Flight 2501 requested to move even lower, to 2,500 feet. In all the sources I read about this crash, I couldn't find a reason that they gave for why they requested it. I don't know if it was because of the storm, or if they had started hitting turbulence, or if there was some other reason. Either way, air traffic control denied their request and told them to stay where they were. By this point, they were around Benton Harbor, Michigan, which is on the east shore of Lake Michigan, the largest freshwater lake in all of the United States. Unfortunately, that last exchange with air traffic control was the last time anyone heard from anyone aboard the plane. Air traffic control tried to talk to them again, but to no avail. At first, nobody knew if they were just experiencing communication troubles or if there was something else going on. When they never arrived in Minneapolis, there was no question that something terrible had happened to the plane. 
since this was the first time a plane had crashed into Lake Michigan ever, and since the plane was carrying so many passengers for the time, it immediately got the attention of the nation. A huge search effort got underway in hopes of finding the plane and possibly survivors. Planes of the same type had been known to stay afloat for a few hours. But officials also said that in rough seas, like Lake Michigan would have been experiencing during the storm, the plane would most likely only stay afloat for 5 to 10 minutes. Even though rescuers knew chances of finding anyone alive were going to be slim, they hunted and hunted anyway. Keep in mind that this plane crash was over 70 years ago, and the safety features required on every plane nowadays weren't standard practice clear back in 1950. There were no colored dye markers, and there were no life rafts. A search boat dragging a grappling hook caught on something not too far from the coast of Milwaukee, and they thought it might be the plane. If that were true, it would mean the plane almost made it completely across the lake before disappearing. Then, about 13 hours into the search, a ship operated by the Coast Guard on the east side of the lake, nowhere near Milwaukee, started seeing oil slicks on the water. A search plane overhead said the oil slick was half a mile long, and those on the water said they could see gas bubbles rising from the water too. Then they started seeing debris of some sort. Since they were pretty sure they'd found the missing plane, they called for backup, and more Coast Guard ships arrived. Pretty soon, they knew they had their answer, since the debris they were seeing in the water consisted of airplane parts, and seat cushions, and luggage. And then they started to see human remains. Different sources listed different water depths for the area. One said it was 40 feet deep, one said it was 66 feet deep, and one said it was 135 feet deep. The truth is, nobody knows for sure, because guess what? The main part of the plane wasn't actually found. Searches went on and on, and dive teams were sent down into the water, but the wreckage wasn't where they thought it was. They looked and looked and looked, but it just couldn't be found. Ever. To this day, more than 72 years later, Flight 2501 has never been found. Because of the items, including body parts found in the water, there's no doubt that the plane crashed. But why hasn't anyone been able to find the plane? The answer is, I don't know. And I'm sure that at this point in time, the plane has been buried in the silt and debris at the bottom of the lake. So, this is where Clive Cussler enters our story. For those of you who know who he was, you might be scratching your head a bit at this point. Clive Kessler was a best-selling writer who wrote exciting adventure novels. Some of his books, like Sahara and Raise the Titanic, were even made into movies. He was releasing books right up until he passed away in February of 2020, right before the world shut down from the pandemic. But his legacy lives on. A lot of Clive's books were based on adventures at sea, or people finding shipwrecks and treasure. So can you guess where this is going? Clive didn't just write about the adventures of his fictional characters. He also lived some of their adventures as an underwater explorer. He wrote nonfiction books about those experiences, and he was the founder of NUMA, the National Underwater and Marine Agency. 
NUMA is a nonprofit organization in real life and a fictional government agency that his character works for in his novels. Anyway, NUMA searches for shipwrecks and has found over 60, including the RMS Carpathia, which you probably remember as the first ship to arrive after the Titanic sink. And also, the CSS Manassas, which was the first ironclad ship used in the Civil War. In particular interest to me, since my first novel was based on this ship, Clive might have found the wreckage of the Mary Celeste. There's a big question mark on that one, though. Anyway, Clive had a particular interest in Flight 2501, and he worked with MSRA, the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates, to perform an annual search for the plane. As he got older, he was no longer able to participate, but since he owned side-scan sonar equipment, he sent it along for quite a few more searches. There's a book written about this plane crash by Valerie Heast called Fatal Crossing. She made the claim that the human remains found floating on the lake at the time of the crash were all buried in a mass grave in St. Joseph, Michigan, and family members were never contacted. The grave was unmarked. Because of this claim, a large granite marker was placed in Riverview Cemetery in 2008, and all of the names of the victims are engraved on it. Then, in 2015, someone doing research in a cemetery in South Haven, Michigan, came across a record stating that the remains that had eventually washed ashore had all been buried in that cemetery. Again, the mass grave had never been marked, and there was no record of it. The burial had been forgotten for 65 years. Don't worry, there's now a memorial in that cemetery too. So, friends, do you think Flight 2501 is lost forever, or will it someday be found? For my second additional history story of the day, I've got a fun story with a surprising twist. One that I definitely didn't see coming when I started reading the first article about it. I first saw a headline about this in the Kansas City Star from June 25th, 1950. I'll read you the headline in a minute. This is the story of William John Nenny. He was raised in Albion, New York, which was, and is, a small town in upstate New York. It's between Rochester and Buffalo. William's parents had immigrated to the United States from Italy a few years before he was born. In 1950, William, or Bill as I think he preferred, was either 38 or 41 years old, and he was living in Houston, Texas. He had a 10-year-old daughter named Barbara, but I'm not sure where she lived. I don't think she was with him in Houston, though, and he hadn't been there for very long anyway. Three months earlier he had hitchhiked to Houston from somewhere near St. Petersburg, Florida. Bill didn't have a lot of money, and in fact, one article quoted Bill as saying that when he arrived in Houston, he was, quote, dead broke. But Bill was determined to make a go of it, and he soon got a job working as a line cook for a drive-in restaurant. He was earning just $50 a week there, which meant there wasn't any room for extras in his life. Bill wore glasses, and one article said he was so nearsighted, he might give you ham instead of bacon with your eggs. Well, little did Bill know that his life was about to change in a very unexpected way. He got a call from Western Union, saying that there was a telegram for him 
and they could read it to him over the phone. The telegram was from a lawyer named Francis Hunt, a lawyer back in Florida. Bill didn't know the man, and the message that accompanied the telegram was kind of confusing. He couldn't quite comprehend what was in it, so he asked Western Union if they could send him a paper copy of the telegram, and they obliged. Now might be a good time to read you the headline that I skipped earlier. It says, Cafe Cook is left $150,000 estate by judge he befriended. A few years earlier, Bill had met a man named Emil Hart. At one point, Emil had been a judge with the Florida Supreme Court. Then, sometime around 1930, the judge was in a car accident with his wife. Sadly, Mrs. Hart passed away from her injuries. Judge Hart survived somehow, but he lost both of his legs, and he was left partially paralyzed. When Bill and Annie met him, they became friends, and Judge Hart asked Bill to work for him as a caregiver, and to accompany him on a trip to Havana, Cuba. After the trip, Bill stayed on as his caregiver, and lived with, and worked for the judge for a few years, until his condition became so bad that the judge had to move into the veteran's home. Then, a few months before Bill received his telegram, the judge passed away. It had taken the judge's attorneys a few months to track Bill down since he had just moved to Texas. They finally found him using the Houston Missing Persons Bureau. Bill's boss said that the heir was so excited when he received the telegram, he accidentally poured creamer into the coffee maker rather than water. When questioned about the inheritance, Bill said that while he worked for Judge Harp, the judge would sometimes tell him cryptic things that didn't make sense at the time, like when he told him his future would be fine and he wouldn't have to worry about money, or when Bill was helping him shave and Judge Hart told him that one day he'd have people shaving him. So, what exactly did Bill inherit? Judge Hart's $150,000 estate included a 90-acre orange orchard worth $1,500 an acre, 21 acres of other types of citrus fruit, a 14-room house in St. Petersburg, Florida, a car, and a luxury yacht. In today's money, the value of the estate would be nearly $2 million. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I've always dreamed about getting a letter telling me that I've inherited millions. Judging by the amount of attention that this story got as soon as the news broke, People in the 1950s had the same dream of suddenly inheriting unexpected money. Bill was in shock, of course, but it didn't take him long to start making plans. He didn't really fill up to managing the estate, so he planned to either lease the property or just sell it if he got a good enough offer. Then he would return to Houston, because although he'd only been there for three months, he apparently really liked it. So... Are you ready for the crazy twist that I told you this story would have? After the news about Bill's fortune broke, newspaper reporters started doing some research so they could write bigger and better articles about the story. They wanted more information about Judge Emil Hart and his service with the Florida Supreme Court, and they wanted more information about his estate over in St. Petersburg. But everywhere the Tampa Bay Times looked, they came up empty. They checked government records, and yes, there had been a Judge Hart on the bench in Florida, but not since 1868, and this was 1950. 
there was no way it could be the same men. Next, they started looking into the location of Judge Hart's estate. There was absolutely no land in all of St. Petersburg that was owned by anyone with the name Emil Hart. And although the reporters looked and looked, they couldn't find anyone in the entire town that had even heard of him. Finally, the reporters checked court paperwork. And sure enough, there was no record of any will being probated in the county for someone named Emil Hart. And there was no record of the lawyer who sent the telegram to Bill Nenny. Everyone was confused. Was Bill Nenny making everything up in an extremely elaborate hoax? Or was someone pulling a very cruel hoax on a man who was down and out and struggling to keep his own head above water? The reporters decided to go right to the source of everything, Bill Nenny himself. And guess what? He was nowhere to be found. He had completely vanished. The question was, had he taken off back to Florida to claim an inheritance that wasn't going to be waiting for him after all? Or was he hiding out because he'd been caught in a lie? I checked in newspapers in the few months following Bill's disappearance, and there were a few more mentions of him, but the answer was always the same. No sign of Bill, no proof of his inheritance story. But I couldn't let this go, so I kept looking. I found record of his parents' death and his four siblings, but other than a mention in name only in his father's online obituary, there's no explanation of where he went. That is, until 1969, 19 years later. A mortuary in New Orleans called up the mayor of Albion, New York. If you remember, that was Bill's hometown. They told the mayor they had a body that they believed was his relative. Except after some more research, the mortuary called back and said, never mind, the name of this man is William John Nenny. We'll probably never know where he was for 20 years. For my last additional history story of the day, I was torn between a few options. One of the options was a story about Shirley May France. She was everywhere during that time and was kind of the it girl. Shirley was 17 years old and wanted to be the youngest female to swim the English Channel. Unfortunately, after three attempts, the teenager gave up without ever successfully making it across. On one of her attempts, she swam with Florence Chadwick, who did make it across and even set a record doing it. Yet Shirley got top billing in the newspapers because she had become so famous. Instead, I'm going to share an article I found in the Kingsport Times News out of Tennessee from June 25, 1950. The headline says, Bloody Murders Plotted to Dupe Insurance Firms. The beginning of the newspaper article said it would be about the lengths people go to in order to commit insurance fraud to collect big payouts. I loved the idea and knew that I'd found some juicy details of stories both old and new. But when I sat down to read the entire article, I got stuck. There were only a couple of paragraphs, and then the article left off in the middle of a word. I looked to the top of the next column, but the rest of the article wasn't there. I figured maybe the rest of the article got moved to a different page. So I looked and looked and looked, but I couldn't find anything. 
Somehow, they had forgotten to finish printing the rest of the newspaper article. I searched to see if the article had been shared with any other newspapers on the same day. But again, I came up empty-handed. Don't worry, I loved the idea of the topic enough that I decided to go right to the original source. You see, the article was originally printed in the American Mercury magazine during the summer of 1950, and it was written by a man named Joseph Fulling Fishman. Mr. Fishman studied penology and the life of prisoners and criminals. Luckily, there was a copy of that magazine edition online. Mr. Fishman said that the idea of getting a large payout would entice people who didn't normally commit crimes, people who were loved in their communities, to do things that didn't fit with their personalities. He also said, quote, It is doubtful if a crook could choose a harder and less profitable field in which to operate. In other words, the schemes rarely worked. For example, there's the story of Joseph O'Connor. One day he started complaining to friends and acquaintances that he didn't feel very good, and his symptoms wouldn't go away. He complained of having headaches, and hot flashes, and an upset stomach, among other things. After a while, Joseph O'Connor became so sick that he was bedridden. He lived in a boarding house, and the other boarders kept trying to get him to see a doctor. But Joseph insisted he'd be fine. But he wasn't. Finally, he gave in and called Dr. Tunney to come see him. Now, Dr. Tunney was a successful physician in the town, and he had a good reputation, so Joseph would be examined by one of the best. Sadly, he was diagnosed with typhoid fever, a disease that can be deadly. Joseph was so far gone at this point that Dr. Tunney told the other boarders there wasn't much chance of him surviving. The boarders, Joseph's friends, did everything they could to help, including running to and from the pharmacy to get medicines when Dr. Tunney called for them. Despite the doctor's best efforts, Joseph passed away from the illness in the middle of the night, and his body was quickly taken to the funeral parlor so that the germs of the disease wouldn't continue to spread. Then, Joseph was later buried. So, who was the recipient of Joseph O'Connor's $15,000 insurance policy? Well, when Joseph's will was read, $7,500 was left for a friend named George Mayer, and the other $7,500 was left for Dr. Tunney. This surprised Joseph's brother, Ralph. After all, he thought he'd had a good relationship with his brother, and assumed that he would have at least left him some of the money. Ralph started to worry that maybe Joseph had been forced to change his will on his deathbed, when he wasn't with it enough to comprehend what was happening. The real story was much, much worse. You see, Joseph O'Connor, Dr. Tunney, and the friend George Mayer were all in on the scheme. Joseph pretended to be sick, Dr. Tunney pretended to attend to him, and then when night came, they snuck Joseph out of the house while all the other boarders were sleeping. Meanwhile, George Mayer, the third partner, killed a man who was about the same size as Joseph, and that's the body that got taken to the funeral home and buried. The life insurance money was divided between George and the doctor, and then each of them paid Joseph $2,500 so that everything was fair and even. It was a good plan, and it would have worked if it hadn't been for that meddling brother. 
When Ralph told the insurance company he was suspicious, they got a court order to exhume the body buried in Joseph's grave. And sure enough, it was not Joseph O'Connor. That was the first indication to Ralph that his brother might actually be in on the plot. But it was too late to do anything. The wheels had been set in motion, and Joseph was tracked down in a hotel in New York City. If that story wasn't crazy enough, Mr. Fishman also told the story of a man named Elbert Candle. Elbert was so well-respected that Fishman said if you were to line up 100 good people from their community, Elbert would have been at the top of the list of those not likely to commit a crime. Yet, Elbert was married to a great woman. He owned a shoe store, and on the outside, it seemed like business and life were going just fine. But in reality, he was in a bit of a financial pickle and struggling to make ends meet. Why? Because there was another woman. A woman described as a gold digger. Not a lot of details are given on this subject, but I got the impression that he bought her everything she demanded because he feared that if he didn't, she would blow the whistle on their affair. It was getting harder and harder for Elbert to cover up his problem. And, since he still cared for the other unnamed woman, he needed a way to get his wife out of the picture. At some point, he realized that if his wife died, not only could he be with the other woman, he would also be the recipient of a very large life insurance policy. So, he began to orchestrate one of the most elaborate crimes I've ever heard of. He didn't start putting his plan into action days or weeks in advance, but rather months in advance, as in six months. Elbert started going to high-class cafes for lunch or cocktails. He wasn't a big drinker, but he was scouting the perfect victim to add to his plot. Elbert knew that if he ate at the same place over and over, he would start to get to know the other regular customers. And that was exactly what happened. He met a man named Tim Carstairs and started chatting. Tim was a bachelor, and Elbert thought that worked even better into his plan. He befriended Tim, and they started hanging out. Then Elbert invited Tim over for dinner so he could meet his wife. The three adults soon made a habit of it, and they often got together to go to the theater and to nightclubs. From the outside, it seemed innocent enough, but every single bit of it was part of Elbert's plan all along. When they would go out, Elbert would purposely leave the table to go to the bathroom, or speak to other patrons, or whatever, just so that Tim and his wife would be seen alone together. Then, whenever Elbert had to leave on business, he would ask Tim to check in on his wife for him, and to take her out to dinner so she wouldn't get bored while he was away. He wasn't pushing for the two to have an affair. They were too good to do something like that but he was developing a pattern for witnesses to later report on when questioned by police. Six months after his plan began, Elbert told his wife he was leaving on business, and like usual, Tim would be coming over to check on her. Then, Elbert left, but he didn't really go anywhere. He snug back into his apartment once he knew Tim was inside, went into the living room where the two were chatting, and without any warning, he shot Tim in the side of the head. Then he shot his wife in the heart. And then he left the building. The locations of the bullets were key to Elbert's plan because he wanted to set it up as a murder-suicide. 
He then left on a shoe-buying trip to Boston. And when he came back, he found the two bodies in his apartment and immediately sent for the police. When questioned, neighbors and other witnesses reported that, yes, they'd seen Tim Carstairs going to Elbert Kendall's apartment quite often, usually when Elbert was out of town. And Elbert himself told the police that he had started to suspect something might be going on with his wife and Tim. His plan had worked perfectly, and the cops weren't suspicious at all. Looking at the crime scene, they could tell that Tim shot the wife and then put the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. It was sad and tragic, and everyone felt sorry for Elbert. Until the insurance agent came along. Something smelled fishy to him, and he began to investigate and take a closer look at the crime scene. He pointed out that the gun had been placed pretty far from Tim, and even more noticeable, the gun didn't have blood on the tip. If it had been placed right against the head like the police claimed, there would have been evidence. Instead, there was blood on the handle, but not the barrel. The agent questioned Elbert multiple times, presenting him with the evidence, and finally, Elbert admitted to everything he had done, and he was sentenced to life in prison. These are just two of the stories shared by Joseph Fulling Fishman in his article. I'd love to share more, but due to lack of time, I'm not going to. If you want to read at least one more story, I'll share one in the additional history headlines you probably miss Facebook group, and you can read it for yourself. There's a really good one that took place in Germany. Trust me, you should check it out. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Scotts Bluff Daily Star-Herald out of Nebraska. This ad on page 4 is for the Rominger Jewelry Company. It features a diamond wedding band and diamond engagement ring that twists to lock together. Or you can untwist them and wear each band separately. I've been wearing my wedding and engagement ring for nearly 23 years now, and I can assure you that my husband did not pay 1950s prices for my ring when he proposed. The 1950s wedding set was just $75. Other diamond wedding sets could be purchased for as low as $25. Wow. Friends, thanks for listening to today's stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Come back here next Monday for another full-size episode of this podcast, and I'll talk to you later.